tracking a changing climate, and the robots exploring Mars. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA is focusing on climate change, specifically observing our changing climate from space. The agency named a new head scientist who will also serve as senior climate advisor, but NASA's focus on climate isn't new. It's been observing the Earth's climate for more than 50 years. What is new is a renewed focus on missions aimed at tracking climate-related data from space and inspiring action down here on Earth. Four missions are set to launch just this year with that goal in mind. To talk more about NASA's past and future efforts to monitor and mitigate climate change, we'll speak with NASA's Karen St. Germain, the director of NASA's Earth Science Division. Then, from Earth to Mars, almost a year ago, three missions arrived at the Red Planet. What have we learned from our robotic explorers? We'll check in with Jake Robbins, host of the We Martians podcast, for the rundown on the Red Planet robots. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. Four missions are set to launch this year to monitor climate change from above. From tracking ocean temperatures, sea level rise, and extreme weather, these observation missions aim to help us better understand our changing climate and build models to forecast future changes. The data also aims to inspire action, motivating us Earthlings to mitigate the problems caused by our changing climate. Karen St. Germain oversees these missions at NASA. She's the head of the agency's Earth Science Division and joins us now to talk about these efforts. Karen, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you, Brennan. So, Karen, let, let's talk about, um, historically, NASA's role in monitoring uh, a changing climate on this planet. What has it done in the past? NASA is the U.S. space agency that has the end-to-end capability to observe the Earth from, from space and deliverable, deliver actionable science. And NASA's been doing this for decades. What I mean by end-to-end is we develop the technology and the mission concepts to look back at our Earth and make the observations we need. We design or or build or acquire the systems that can make those observations. We launch them. We collect the data. We we perform the research that gives us the understanding of the Earth system, and we uh, support the applications of that science. And, uh, and much of that work has supported our understanding of climate change. Karen, tell me, because this is for radio, uh, tell me what, what these things see. What, what, what kind of, what, what are you actually seeing from, from space? Well, the, the uh, systems that we launch that orbit the Earth, they look at, they, they give us this unique view of the whole Earth as a system. So they look at the ocean surface. They look at the ice in the Arctic. They, uh, they look at the atmosphere uh, and give us profiles of what's happening in the atmosphere. And of course, they look at uh, what's happening on land and, uh, and including things like soil moisture and uh, vegetation and, and those sorts of things. So the idea is we look at all of the elements of the Earth system, and that allows us to understand how the Earth works as a system model it, and get to a predictive capability. This has been part of NASA's history for 
almost 50 years now with with a bulk of of a lot of this these missions launching in the 90s but you know going into the 2020s here and with with this NASA administration there is a, a huge focus on earth observation as it comes to monitoring climate change what's ahead there i believe there's what four missions <laughs> just this year that are that are launching i mean tell tell me about the motivation for for NASA's interest in the here and now and and these missions that are happening this year? We have about 23 different uh, uh, missions on orbit today. And as you said, we'll be be launching a number of new missions this year. We have have had strong support both within the administration and on Capitol Hill over decades for a sustained effort to understand the Earth as a system. So this portfolio of programs uh, is continuously evolving to answer the next most uh, important uh, scientific questions about how the Earth system works. But in particular, I'll highlight two of our upcoming missions this year, uh, TROPICS and SWAT. The TROPICS is, uh, 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 is a series of satellites. We'll start launching these in March, and they will collect high-resolution observations of precipitation and storm intensification, um, particularly over the oceans. And these are these are small satellites. These are CubeSats. Uh, it's a constellation of 12 CubeSats, each weighing uh, about eight pounds or a little uh, the equivalent of about a gallon of milk. And these CubeSats will use uh, a technique called passive microwave radi- uh, spectrometry. It, they will provide soundings of temperature and moisture in the atmosphere and give us rapid refresh so we'll be able to see how storms intensify. Uh, and, and that's increasingly important, of course, because uh, with climate change, as the oceans warm, they are fueling these tropical storms and we're seeing more incidents of uh, intensification from tropical storm to hurricane, for example, mm-hmm. and increasing frequency of rapid intensification. And so we were really trying to understand under what circumstances does that happen? Mm-hmm. The other mission is a SWAT. That's the Surface Water and Ocean Topography Mission. And this is a collaboration with the French Space Agency, uh, CNES, and also uh, having contributions from the Canadian and UK space agencies. So it's a great example of uh, one of the ways that we, we do many of our missions is through international collaboration. Right. SWAT is going to help us better understand the oceans and surface waters. So oceans, but also the smaller bodies of water inland and measuring how these bodies of water change over time. Um, and so they'll tell us how much water there is on our planet. And that's particularly important because today we don't have a good understanding of water in places uh, where it's hard to, uh, to make measurements from the ground or from the air. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so this, these, this of course will help us, uh, predict for coastal communities, what kind of, uh, changes they may see in their flooding, likewise river deltas and, and inland water bodies. Mm-hmm. So those are just a couple of the upcoming missions immediately. Mm-hmm. And then we are planning for the next generation of missions we're calling the earth system observatory. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I was born and raised in Florida. I'm based here in Florida. So when when you talk about storms and you talk about sea level rise, that's something that's that I'm very familiar with here. Is what we're going to learn from these two missions, both both SWAT and Tropics, is it going to have some kind of practical impact on on let's say Floridians who who may be impacted by these storms or who may be impacted by you know a, a rising sea level and a changing coastline? Absolutely, these missions will help us understand these processes much more clearly than we understand them today. And we work very closely with our sister agency, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which provides uh, your operational weather forecasts. NOAA, uh, for example, is the the home of the National uh, Weather Service as well as the Hurricane Center. So when we advance the scientific understanding of storms and sea level rise and those kinds of things. We work with our sister agencies to make sure that information gets as quickly as possible into the operational pipeline to improve the routine forecasts that uh, that the whole country relies on. Mm-hmm. Karen, you mentioned something earlier that that you're excited not only because of the administration's um, buy-in on this, but also Capitol Hill for a, a prolonged missions. Um, I've got to assume with with data like this, you know, point in time data is is probably very valuable. But you're looking at overall trends over a long period of time, right? I mean, is is that why this these kind of prolonged missions are so important is to find these trends and, and identify these trends and in, in these changing data points? Yeah, that's that's one of the key elements here observations and observations over time and improvements, new capabilities, the ability to observe things we haven't observed before, that leads us to better understanding of how the system works, the Earth system, that is. And and when you understand how the system works, you can model the system. And that modeling is what gives you the predictive capability, the ability to look out into the future and understand how things may continue to evolve And that's really the key to preparedness and response to climate change. And it's important for every county in the United States. That was going to be my next question. I I see your your picture behind you there that says Earth, Science, and Action. We talked about the Earth. We talked about the science. Uh, How is is this, these missions and and the work that you're doing in your office going to help kind of inspire or motivate action? Yeah, it's a a great question. And it's one that I am uh, deeply passionate about is is press, what I call pressing science into action, helping uh, to inform decision makers at every level, federal, state, local, community, tribal, to make informed decisions. And uh, so I'll give you some examples. Uh, we work very closely to uh, help monitor and predict uh, drought and, and uh, water management approaches in the western part of the United States. We work closely with the Department of Agriculture on the, the reports and the, uh, the, the tools that the agriculture community really relies on to inform their decisions. And then, of course, uh, likewise, and we've, we've been talking about uh, the collaboration with NOAA to make sure that we're informing our ability to predict not just hurricanes, but also severe weather inland. We've seen record-breaking uh, tornado outbreaks and uh, and those sorts of things. So, so that transition of 
the understanding we get from the scientific research, pushing that out to, to help people make decisions at every level is, uh, is an important part of our program. Mm-hmm. What about kind of ordinary citizens or, or the general public? I mean, is, is this data made available to them in a way that they can understand what's happening in, in their own neighborhoods, their own backyards? It is. We, we sustain a, a significant presence on the web, for example. All of our data are free and openly available. And, and we write a lot of stories about how the data, uh, where, they, where the data or the understanding comes from and what it means. Um, and, uh, and we're always looking to improve the way we, we talk with the general public about what we know and just as importantly, how we know it, why we know it's true. Mm-hmm. And, and help them understand the, the, uh, the changes that are coming in a way that is meaningful to them. And finally, Karen, what are you hoping to understand or gain over the next, say, five or ten years with, with some of these missions that are launching? Well, you know, one of the things that I am most excited about is that we're starting the, this, this year, we're starting work on the next generation. By the end of this decade, what we are trying to put in, in, uh, into orbit is something called the Earth System Observatory. It is five new missions that together give us a holistic view of the Earth. We have missions on there that, that uh, explore the atmosphere, the ocean, the land surface, the ice. And th- this treating all of these missions as a single observatory will give us a dramatically improved view of the whole Earth system. So we're working hard to build that so that by the end of this decade, we're in a much better position than we even are today. That was Karen St. Germain, head of NASA's Earth Science Division. Still to come, an update from the Red Planet. And next week on Are We There Yet? The Great Pluto Debate heats up once more. We'll speak with Florida Space Institute's Phil Metzger about a new paper arguing Pluto's planethood. That's next week. Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's space station. I'm Brendan Byrne. It's been almost a year since an armada of Mars missions made it to the Red Planet. Three countries sent robots to explore Mars, and since then, their science campaigns are in full swing. To talk more about these Martian missions, we're joined by Jake Robbins. He hosts the podcast We Martians. Jake, thanks for joining us. Hey, no problem. Good to be here. Uh, this past year has been a very exciting year for Martian exploration. Just remind us what all happened back in February. What happened a year ago? <laughs> yeah, it was a very, very exciting year for Mars exploration because we had uh, the arrival of, of three different spacecraft. So we had um, NASA's Perseverance rover uh, land in Jezero Crater. We had the Chinese Space Agency, uh, uh, that an orbiter arrived and then later dropped a lander on the surface, which has a rover. Uh, and then the United Arab Emirates as well uh, put an orbiter into uh, space around Mars. And so it was like all of a sudden we had a whole bunch of new spacecraft generating a whole bunch of new data. And uh, people like me covering this stuff had a lot of work to do. <laughs> <laughs> you did. You, you covered it quite a bit um, 
um, in uh, on your podcast, We Martians. Let's talk a little bit about some of the some of the science that these missions are uncovering. Let's start with with kind of the one that that we hear the most about, um, NASA's Perseverance rover. Um, it, it took a bit to get its uh, instruments deployed, um, but you know the latter part of of last year, it did some really great science. What what have we learned about uh, the Red Planet? Yeah, that's right. They you know they have to spend some time kind of getting the the rover calibrated and making sure everything works and turned on. But uh, once they get that going, then uh, they can kind of get to work. And we're still not at the point where we have like good you know peer reviewed published science on it yet. They have kind of some preliminary results that they've reported, um, but it's all very exciting stuff. So um, you know one of the headlines would be that they have confirmed that there are organics uh, in the in the ground in Jezero Crater, which we all kind of thought there was because it seems like everywhere we go on Mars we find organics, but it's it's never the same, you know, guessing based on orbital data, whereas you can really get down and get your hands into the muck, so to say, and actually look at them with your uh, with your instruments. And so that's very exciting. Um, and then I think one of the big surprises that Perseverance had was uh, sort of the nature of the rocks there. So um, it landed in this big crater called Jezero that has this huge river delta. So if you're familiar with something like the Mississippi Delta, it's just like that, but all the water's dried up. But we can still see this big, you know, fan-shaped thing spilling into this crater. And when you see a rock like that, you think sedimentary. This is the kind of rock that forms where water brings little pieces of rock together and they kind of, you know, consolidate down. Um, but when they got close, they realized that the rocks here, even though they looked layered like sedimentary, ended up being a lot more volcanic than they uh, expected. So uh, it turns out that at some point in the history of this crater, you know, some sort of lava flow or, or magma chamber that got unearthed or something like that was here. And these rocks are just cooled uh, lava or magma. And so that was a surprise for a lot of the scientists. And they're still trying to figure out you know, where that fits in the history, because they had a lot of ideas about the formation of the crater and a lot of ideas about the formation of the delta. And now there's a volcano they need to factor into the uh, equation somewhere. So it's been a pretty exciting um, end of the year for the Perseverance team. From a geological standpoint, though, that is a great place to land, right? If you're if you're trying to unlock the geological history of this planet, it water, lava, it seems like everything's there. It has it all. Yeah. And what's really exciting is that Perseverance is a mission that's going to be, uh, has taken samples, and we're going to get those samples back to Earth. And so um, one day, what we'll be able to do with those samples once they get here is absolutely date them. And so, you know, right now we know based on the layers that the, the lava rocks are older than the sedimentary rocks because the sedimentary rocks are on top. We kind of have this relative age very easily, right? Lower rocks are older, higher rocks are younger. But once we are able to look at that sample in our hands and do some carbon dating with, you know, from fancy labs here on Earth, we'll be able to know not only is it older, but it's this many years old, which will give us a constraint on how old the delta is as well. And so it's very interesting that we're going to be able to, to connect these two data sets once we get the samples back. It's, I, I can't wait for it. It's very exciting. Mm-hmm. Jezero Crater was picked for its 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 history and the fact that there was this ancient river running through it. On, on a recent episode you did um, back in November, you talked to a planetary scientist about the history of of water on Mars and how it flows. Um, what are some of the things that that we're learning about, and and what are some of the more interesting things that scientists are are keeping their eyes on when it comes to this kind of ancient history of of water on Mars? Yeah, um, so I think the interview you're talking about was um, with a planetary scientist named Tim Gouge, who uh, is at the University of uh, Texas at Austin, um, a good friend of mine, and he did some really cool work about um, studying things just like Jezero. So this is a, a, a case where you have a, a you know a crater which is like a bowl shape 
and then at some point it fills with water like a lake and then it breaches on one side you know the, the water overcomes one of the side and it like breaks down the wall and then there's there's like this flood event like this you know catastrophic flood event spilling a bunch of water all over the surface so sometime in mars past this happened here at, at jezero and uh, what tim was looking at was sort of trying to understand how often this happen is this a a a one-off weird event that you know isn't a big player in in the water history of mars or is it way more common than we thought and we need to think about it more carefully and it turns out it might be the latter so there they found a lot of instances where we have these these catastrophic lake breaches and it does sort of you know uh, pose more questions about the the history of water on mars which is uh, an ever everlasting question we never really have a good answer on that we're always learning all the time but we know there was a lot of water we just don't exactly know how it was there why it was there and where it went so that's the that's the big the big question that we will continue to work on in the, the new year mm-hmm. um another interesting piece of the the nasa mars perseverance mission is its stowaway ingenuity um which had Far more flights than than we expected. Um, yeah. <laughs> tell us a bit about its time on on Mars and and what engineers and scientists had learned about uh, helicopters on Mars. Yeah, it's been a really exciting sort of side story to the whole Perseverance mission. Um, this is a little technology demonstration. It's a you know it's a helicopter the size of I don't know a lawnmower or something like that. It's not very big, um, so it's more like a drone than it is like a you know what you think of as a helicopter. Um, but it was kind of designed to fly five times. So that was a, that was going to be a win for NASA if you could fly it five times and see how it works and see if you could fly on Mars where the atmosphere is only 1% as thick. Uh, that was going to be a win. Uh, and so far, they're up to 18 flights. So uh, it blew right past the five and just kept going. And it's been so exciting to watch because it's still a technology demonstration and it's being run by a team that knows that any day this could just stop working like they're they're really living every day like it's their last and it's just been so fun to watch so they're pushing the envelope on what they're doing um very recently they have tried to fly with the rotor speed kind of amped up because um it's the time of year on mars where the seasons are making the atmosphere a little thinner and so if the atmosphere is thinner then flying at the same speed means you won't get as much lift so they're trying to spin a little faster but they don't know if it was going to work and so they tried that and it seems to be okay they had a little hiccup with one flight but they got it working and they were able to fly around and now they're doing this whole thing where they're sort of landing blind and so um what they do is they're they're flying away from the rover and they, they depend on the rover for communications back to earth so the the helicopter can't call home it does so through the rover and so what they're been doing is they've been flying so far from it and then landing in a place that's like behind a hill and so when they land they lose this communication through radio to the rover and the helicopter has to just figure it out and it just kind of lands and we don't know if it worked we have to like wait a couple weeks for the rover to drive around back to where it was and get around this hill and look at it and so they've been having some doing some fun things like that they're just like a little risky and and exciting to watch and, and participate in and see just see how far this helicopter can go. It, it's just a joy to to participate in. Is this laying the groundwork for a, a future helicopter mission, a robotic helicopter mission to Mars, or or, or maybe even another place in the solar system? Well, I'm, I, there are definitely people that hope so. Um, I probably one of those people. There are some proposals already, you know, built off of Ingenuity for like a full science mission, like not not a tech demonstration, but a a larger helicopter that has its own science payload that can be sent as an independent mission. Um, Those are all still in the concept phase. So, you know, there's nothing on the books yet, but uh, I hope something would come from that. And this is really proving that it's possible and we should be thinking about it. 
Um, but there is a mission going to Titan in, um, uh, it's not, not getting anytime soon. It's still, you know, six, seven years away, uh, but it's called Dragonfly. And that's a NASA mission that will, will fly a drone on Titan. Um, it's not quite the same thing because Titan has very little gravity compared to Mars and a much, much thicker atmosphere. So, you know, if you and I strapped a couple pieces of cardboard to our arms, we'd be able to fly on Titan. Um, it's, it's that, uh, that kind of an environment. So it's not quite as challenging as it is for ingenuity, but it is still, you know, a spacecraft with rotors that is doing science on another planet. And that is just uh, pretty exciting. So I, I hope that there are a lot of takeaways that they can take, at least in terms of, you know, validating models. How does rotorcraft work in a different atmosphere? It's uh, it's lots of fun stuff you can learn. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some of the other missions that landed um, or, or that arrived in February. There's the UAE's Hope Orbiter and the uh, Chinese Orbiter and Lander. Um, what kind of things are we learning from them? What science is coming back from those missions? Well, the Hope Pro has been doing really well. Um, they were able to commission all their instruments and start collecting data that, you know, they began their primary science phase. And then just this past uh, October, they did their full first public release of data. So the UAE has been really committed to a transparent release of all the data to the public for anyone to use and do science with. And so uh, their first download came in October, which was very exciting. Uh, So they're doing some great work. I mean, the the orbiter is very uh, straightforward. It's just got three cameras on it that look in different wavelengths of light. And so they get kind of three different perspectives. The the pictures have been really spooky almost. Um, they're really pretty. They're like this, you know, you can get these kind of ultraviolet views of the planet. Um, they're learning a lot about uh, atmospheric oxygen at Mars that has been new and different than what they expected. Um, I think we... But before hope, we had sort of this idea that there was sort of a uniform distribution, like no matter where you went on Mars, the amount of atmospheric oxygen was the same. And what hope is finding is that it's it's patchy. There's little blobs of it all over and some places have a lot and some places have a little. So that's pretty exciting to see. And, uh, you know, they're they're doing some pretty, pretty honest work contributing to the, the scientific uh, understanding of Mars. So that's been fantastic. Um, China is less forthcoming with their, uh, their data. So we don't have a, a ton of perspective on this, but they are definitely operating. So their orbiter is now moved to its, uh, kind of its final science orbit where it will park long-term and do, do work like that. And the Rover has moved, uh, oh man, it headed South from its landing point. So it's, you know, it's like a couple hundred sols into its mission. And, uh, I think it's about a kilometer that it's traveled so far. And so, um, this is their first landing with a rover, so they picked a pretty flat, mundane-looking place. It's not seeing some of the amazing topography that Perseverance or Curiosity are seeing, um, but they, uh, they're they're out there working. They're taking pictures, and uh, we just got the most exciting thing recently from this mission has uh, been a little camera they deployed from the orbiter. Um, we didn't know this was going to happen, but basically in space, the little, the orbiter dropped this little, it must be like a, basically like a GoPro that just spins off in space and takes a picture of the orbiter as it flies away and radios the picture back. And so we actually get like a picture of this spacecraft in orbit around Mars from up close, which we've just never seen before. So it's like really bizarre to look at and uh, very exciting. <laughs> Jake Robbins is the host of the We Martians podcast. Jake, thank you so much for joining us again. Happy to be here. You can listen to We Martians on all the major podcast platforms or visit wemartians.com. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to this show's podcast feed. You can do that on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can visit wmfe.org slash there yet. And while you're there, you can find more space news on our website. Visit wmfe.org slash space. Or follow us on Twitter. The show's at A-W-T-Y space. And I'm at Space Brendan. 
Are we there yet? It's a production of WMFE, America's Space Station, and editorial guidance this week was from LaToya Dennis. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>